Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Abolition is not just about a reaction to the prison industrial complex. We want to make sure that these institutions are not normalized facets of our society anymore. That's the work. In 1995, political scientist John Diulio predicted that a wave of adolescent super predators would soon corrupt our streets and fill American prisons. A super predator is a young juvenile criminal who is so impulsive, so remorseless, that he can kill, rape, maim without a, a, giving it a second thought. Diulio wrote that on the horizon are tens of thousands of severely morally impoverished juvenile super predators. They are perfectly capable of committing the most heinous acts of physical violence for the most trivial reason. They fear neither the stigma of arrest nor the pain of imprisonment. They live by the meanest code of the meanest streets, he wrote. Nothing else matters to them. So for as long as their youthful energies hold out, they will do what comes naturally. Murder, rape, rob, assault, burglarize, deal deadly drugs, and get high. Diulio was not talking about adults. He was talking about teens, middle schoolers, more than high schoolers. He was talking about people like me. I was 13 years old in 1995. Was I a super predator, or was I fearing the super predator? I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and this is Be Anti-Racist. Being a black man in America isn't easy. 
the hunt is on. And you're the prey. Menace to Society came out in 1993. And by the time the 1994 crime bill was passed, crime rates had already started falling. We together are taking a big step toward bringing the laws of our land back into line with the values of our people and beginning to restore the line between right and wrong. Today, pundits and politicians talk about a crime wave or a violent crime wave in American cities. But many crimes, from larcenies to robberies to rape, dropped during the pandemic and continued to fall in 2021. Only homicides have increased as other crimes fell. But the increase in homicides beginning in 2020 happened across cities and towns of all sizes, from small towns with fewer than 10,000 residents to cities with more than one million. Tiulio later recanted his own thesis that super predators who look like me were going to overrun this nation with crime. The super predator idea was wrong. Once it was out there, though, it was out there. There was no reeling it in. The old racist caricature preyed on Black people as dangerous animals. In the racist imaginary, the root cause of crime and violence in Black neighborhoods is the Blackness of the people. To be Black, in this view, is to be an animal. And the way to control those animals is with the surveilling, policing, profiling, arresting, and punishing power of the state. Our state, the United States, has the largest incarcerated population in the world, and only the U.S. and Chinese militaries cost more than American policing. For a long time in this country, the preyed upon have been considered dangerous. Indigenous people were considered dangerous, not the settlers and armies waging land-stealing wars and massacres. My enslaved ancestors were considered dangerous, not the enslavers subjugating them through violence. Immigrants have been considered dangerous, not the nativists harassing and attacking and exploiting them. Teens playing with toy guns or walking home from the store, snacking on Skittles, have been considered dangerous, not the cops and wannabe cops who murdered them. Black communities are considered dangerous, not the communities of politicians depriving those areas of resources and opportunities, not the gangster capital exploiting those communities, not the police officers brutalizing Black people like we are predators. When will the American people redirect their fear? Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism, how to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy, how to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll. (laughs) 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The criminal legal system focuses on individuals who have done harm, while abolitionists consider the larger social, economic, and political context in which the harm occurs. These are the words of one of America's most influential abolitionists, Mariam Kaba. She is the founder of Project NIA, an organization that aims to end the incarceration of children and young adults by promoting restorative and transformative justice practices. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. If you want to understand the perspective of those Americans calling for the defunding and abolishing of the police, I encourage you to read this book. While other Americans are committed to feeling secure, Kaba is committed to being safe. We discussed why she doesn't believe a society of mass surveillance, policing, punishment, and incarceration will ever allow us to build a safe society, and what will. I've been looking forward to our conversation for quite some time. I admire your, your work, and of course, you've been in this struggle for years. 
Well, thanks for inviting me to be part of this conversation. I appreciate your work, so it's a pleasure. What's fascinating about your work is your precise and critical attention to terminology. And I share that, so I, <laughs> I'm always trying to be quite precise in the words that I use and the definitions that I utilize. So to give an example, you don't use the term criminal justice system. Why? Yeah, I started using the term criminal punishment system, I don't know, probably about 15 years ago. Wow. The term really, for me, was important because it is what the system actually is. Hmm. It is what the system actually does. Why do we incarcerate people? We've heard that it is deterrence. All people who believe in empirical science tell us that actually incarceration doesn't deter anybody from anything. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of euphemistic talk, in particular as it relates to issues of incarceration and issues of policing. It's actually very intentional in many ways, because when you obscure the actual material impacts of institutions, you really can do anything to people. You can justify anything. We have been told that incarceration is for, quote, rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know for a fact that incarceration is criminogenic, which means that people who actually enter the first time are more likely to enter over and over and over again than they are to, quote, get well. Mm. If you hear stories of people who say, prison really saved my life. Those are very much exceptions. And when you ask those people, okay, well, what else could have saved your life, you know, yeah. prior to you ending up behind bars? They will tell you a million different things that could have actually prevented them from getting in in the first place. And if you gave them a choice between using that versus going to prison, they always will tell you the preventative stuff would have been much better. Yeah. People are much more comfortable using words that don't implicate them in the harms that are occurring under our name and with our money and with our support, whether it's public opinion support, whether it's our silence, which is tacit support. So I started using the term criminal punishment system for that purpose. You use the term cage mm -hmm. <laughs> regularly, people being caged. And let me just tell you, I went to graduate school at Temple. And so I spent a lot of my years in North Philadelphia. I would hit up this barbershop close to my house. It was a working class, working poor area in North Philly. And I never forget, waiting for my haircut, dude was taking forever. And <laughs> the brother in the chair, the barber, of course, asked him, oh, you know, what's been good with you? How have you been doing? And he said, I just got out of bondage. Mm. I just got out of my cage. Mm. And so the use of that term cage, why that term? Well, actually, that I got from incarcerated friends. Mm, yeah. And I got from comrades on the inside. It's not something I invented. When I started writing to incarcerated people like 25 years ago, they would talk about being in a cage. It was a politicized term they created to convey what they wanted me to understand about enclosure and about capture and about dehumanization mm. that was occurring for them on a regular basis. So I just have gone with what the people I'm in community in relationship with have told me 
about their own experience using their own language. The people who are locked up are constantly fighting against their dehumanization by reclaiming and insisting on their humanity. It's a description that feels apt, at least to the people that I know and care about. Another term, of course, is the term abolitionist. And so if you could just share what it means to you. I've always tried to define abolition as a vision of a restructured society and world, a world where we have everything we need to live dignified lives, food and shelter and education and health and beauty and art and clean water and everything else. Abolition is not just about a reaction to the prison industrial complex, though that's a central aspect of it. Mm -hmm. It's really a commitment to making the conditions that would lead to people feeling those institutions are necessary impossible. That's the work. We want to make sure that these institutions are not normalized facets of our society anymore, at least for me. That's prison industrial complex abolition. It pushes us to break with the current order. It pushes us to say, not this, while simultaneously forging new ground and building a different world. I'm a PAC abolitionist in its simplest terms Mm -hmm. because I want to dismantle a system that is predicated on premature death. And as Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore teaches us on organized abandonment, and I want instead to build one that is focused on life and true safety. At bottom, at its crux, that's why I'm a prison industrial complex abolitionist. Hmm. What I have found in my conversations with people trying to get them to imagine that different type of world is they get caught up typically in a term that you also don't use, and that's the term bad people. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of teaching Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete in a graduate course. And everybody was okay with people who commit non-violent drug crimes and yeah, nonviolent offenses. Yeah. But then when it was like, oh, what are we going to do with the bad people? <laughs> meaning the serial rapists and killers, that that's where everyone got hung up. What are we going to do with them if we don't have prisons and police and mass surveillance? How do you typically respond to that? I always say, tell me a little bit about what it is that you're concerned about. I'm not going to engage you in a conversation about the quote unquote bad people. I think there are people who do bad things. Mm. That's my inclination as somebody who is steeped in the ideas of transformative justice, I get that. But I try not to spend all my time getting caught up in people's law and order vision, (laughs) like television vision of the serial rapist in the bushes. So I'll ask people like, are you asking me how you're going to keep yourself safe? Is that the question? And they might say, well, Yeah, I guess. And I'll say, well, how are you doing that now Mm. in this world that we have where there are prisons and policing and surveillance and billions and billions of dollars afforded to those institutions? How do you keep yourself safe today? How often do you rely on the criminal punishment system within that conceptualization? Right. Like, have you called the cops in the last year, the last five years, the last 10 when you've been harmed? Have any of the people who've harmed you ended up behind bars? Wow. The questions actually help people to pinpoint what it is they're 
fearful about and work on that. Let's figure out how to create the spaces and the institutions and what it is we need to feel safe in our communities. That is at the bottom of what abolitionists care about. We care about harm. This is why we purposely don't use the term crime. Because a lot of things that are criminal are not harmful to many other people. And a lot of things that are harmful are not criminalized. So what are we really talking about here? We're talking about harm. Hmm. And once that becomes clear to people, people are much more open to hearing out ideas for other ways of thinking about how we make safety for ourselves and for our communities. As we're making a different world, we will come to other answers for how we handle various kinds of things. The answers provided now don't work and don't actually do what it is that people say they want to have done. Yeah, and and that can be proven empirically. Yeah, so let's do something else. You also talk about that people have been indoctrinated by the idea that these institutions are holding that harm at bay or that we solve problems of harm through these institutions. Right. You wrote that the hegemony of the police is so complete that we often can't begin to imagine a world without the institution. It is actually the case in my experience that people are more likely to be able to imagine a world without prisons than they are a world without police and policing. Hmm. There are lots of reasons for that. As you were growing up, when did you first come to consciousness about the existence of a police officer? (laughs) Probably what... Eight or nine years old. Yeah, so eight or nine. And I would push even further and say, you probably played games like Cops and Robbers when you were even smaller. Yeah, probably. And you probably had some sort of toys that also spoke to the issue of cops. The cops are literally, for us in the United States and now around the world, like the weather. Mm. They are so part of our daily existence that often we don't even think about them. And you don't question. You just don't. You just don't question that they should exist. For many people, their lives are structured in a way where the cops only exist when they are called. (laughs) Hardly ever seen in the landscape of their communities, never in their schools. And they are able to live that way because the cops are enforcing violence on all these other communities. They are surveilling all these other communities. They are, quote, policing all these other communities. It comes from a socialization that is so deeply rooted within our culture so as to not even allow us to be able to think outside of it. The television shows and the billboards, when you're driving sometime long distance, look at how many advertisements and billboards speak to policing in some way. It's a miracle, frankly, if some of us come to consciousness and we begin to question their existence and we begin to say, why does it have to be this way, actually? Yeah. And then there's the personalization. My Uncle Johnny's a good cop, right? Like, I'm not talking about your Uncle Johnny. I'm talking about police (laughs) and policing. Yes. So I think that that's really where all these things live in real ways that have impacts on our ability to actually be able to even conceptualize a different way. And anything you offer that would be a different way gets interpreted through the lens of a very personalized affront to your belief system or 
there's just no other option. Mm. This is all inevitable. It's always been this way. And I love the quote by David Graeber. We made the world and we can just as easily make it different. It's a terrible paraphrase of his words. But that was something that gave me so much power and an ability to be like, well, yes, the world is organized this way because we've organized it this way. It doesn't have to be. Exactly. Of course, different things can happen. They've always happened. I'm Miriam Kaba, and you're listening to Be Anti-Racist with Ibram X. Kendi. I think the indoctrination has created this simple formula that when you have less police in prisons, there's more quote-unquote crime. And correct me if I'm wrong, But what you're ultimately stating is that when you have more police in prisons, you're actually going to have more harm. To me, that's true on its face Mm -hmm. because they are inherently violent institutions that cause harm. They don't just exist in a neutral capacity. Like they're in the way, right? Yes. So that's one thing. But I think the second thing I want to push back on that the academy and the researchers and all these crime industrial complex folks have conflated things that I'm not sure go together. Mm -hmm. So for example, I constantly get told prisons have an impact on quote, crime rates. And I always have to ask, which crimes are you talking about supposedly? How do you empirically know this to be true? The Academy of Sciences did this massive literature review of all these experimental and empirical studies and found that incarceration actually had a very negligible impact on supposed crime rates. Mm. If the relationship you're making between the prisons and crime, it's actually very little. What might it look like not to have them causing harm in the communities we may actually get further because we would have all these resources that we could reappropriate into communities to actually take care of people's needs, therefore making it even less likely that people would have to, quote, turn to crime to be able to actually sustain a life. Mm. Yet the notion of these institutions being criminal enterprises themselves, that gets pushed aside. What about the studies that show how much police contribute to homicide rates? I've seen those. They're killing a thousand people a year. Why does that just get taken out and not treated as part of this notion if you say that your issue is to eradicate violence? I'm actually anti-prison, anti-policing, and anti-surveillance because I'm anti-violence. Yes. And when you believe that prisons, surveillance, and police are going to reduce harm and violence, you're going to fund them. (laughs) The combined cost of U.S. policing is more than not only every other police force in the world, but every other military in the world, aside from the Chinese and U.S. military. And then what are you not going to fund? And then how will that lack of funding for healthcare, for jobs, for education, for housing, for mental health services, then lead to harm and violence. It seems to us to be as clear as day. Why isn't it as clear as day for other people? You know, I think it is clear as day to many people, but I think a lot of people just don't want to engage that. Okay. Because of racism, because of classism, because of all the forces of oppression 
that make it so that some people benefit from having the status quo and others don't. And to me, if you're doing pretty well in your community, you don't care how much is being spent on the cost. You got what you need. Yeah. Your kid's going to college. You've got health care when you need it. You are in a position of not wanting to rock the boat to the point where you might actually lose, in your mind, some statuses that you feel like you actually need to be able to live the life you want to lead. Mm. And I think we can't get away from the fact that some people are actually benefiting from the current status quo. Yeah. And those people, it's in their interest to continue to paint the rest of us as naive, radical, homicide-loving people because they are comfortable in this current circumstance. They don't get the vagaries, the tragedies. They don't experience it in the ways that other people do. And so it becomes easier to deal with that. I love this quote by Bill Ayers, which I use all the time. Policing, surveillance, and prison are the last entitlements. Mm. While every social need and priority is hollowed out or eliminated, and the occupying police forces are brought in to manage the predictable crisis. So you defund everything else. You leave everybody in destruction alley. Those folks are desperate. They're not going to just go down without a fight. They're going to try to survive by any means necessary. And then you use the police force to quell those people's rebellions because we all know by not giving people what they need, we are actually encouraging the crisis. Exactly. We know it. And so I think part of our work is to constantly bring this up to people. It's to constantly challenge the status quo. It's to constantly ask better questions. You write that the criminal punishment system focuses on individuals who've done harm, while abolitionists consider the larger social, economic, and political context in which the harm occurs. And part of the reason for that is because you just don't want to focus on that single person who was harmed. You want to eliminate the harm itself. And you don't believe in the concept that this person is inherently bad. (laughs) So there must be conditions that must be changed. The beauty and gift that PIC abolition as a vision, an ideology, and a practical organizing strategy gave me was to move me out of the, quote, personal responsibility narrative that I had grown up around, Hmm. that I had imbibed as someone who lived in a world that was filled with a bunch of liberals, where everything was about individual rights and individuals and people and choices. But I was living in New York City, growing up in the 70s and 80s, seeing the actual destruction that was being wrought by policies that my friends had no role in creating. Hmm. But they were getting swept up into Rikers, They were dying of AIDS. There was all this stuff going on that had nothing to do with their personal responsibility, but had everything to do with the fact that policies could have actually made a difference in their lives, kept them alive, given them what they needed to survive. And if this pandemic we've all gone through has not made that crystal clear to you as a human being in this country, that policy has a huge impact on whether or not you can thrive and survive, then I don't know what it's going to take to shift your consciousness. The fact that the government opened up the coffers and just threw money at a bunch of businesses, that it just said, okay, we're going to make the vaccine free, that it could 
add money to your unemployment so that you could actually make a living wage. The fact that all of that could be done on a dime, like the spigot could be open that way. Should that not tell you something about the difference between focusing on the individual for everything and making a systemic choice to support people with the resources they need to be able to live? It made an abolitionist case for us in some ways, right? It was curtailed. There were contestations. One of the reasons the the right wing was so freaked out and wanting to throw aside the masks and force everybody back to work is because they know what I just told you is true. Exactly. When the right started pushing for the right and the freedom to open back up, I ended up writing this piece in the Atlantic that basically argued that we're still in a slaveholder's republic. Mm. And what I argued was that the slaveholder, the individual, wanted the freedom to enslave. Mm. (laughs) There's no difference between that and the individual saying, I should have the freedom to infect people. Mm. (laughs) I should have the freedom to kill and exploit and harass and terrorize. And enslaved people had a different philosophy Instead of the individual to, it was the community from. So how do we as a community gain freedom from slavery, from oppression, or in the case of the coronavirus, from infection? I think we have to stop claiming innocence and ignorance about things we deeply within ourselves know. Why do we want to send people who we despise to jail? Mm. You don't send people that you like. To places that are horrors and torture chambers. One thing I do want to point out about the analogy of enslavement, enslaved people were abolitionists. They'd already figured out that it was immoral, unjust, and wrong to keep other people in bondage. How did they know that? They didn't have schooling. Mm -hmm. You think George Washington, with all his erudition, did not know that enslavement was wrong? Of course he knew it was wrong because he wouldn't trade places with Ona Judd, his slave. That means he knew what she was dealing with in terms of her capture, enclosure, violence, all of that stuff. They knew. And the same thing is true today. We know what the PIC is doing to people. Stop pretending you don't know about the violence of policing and the violence of prisons. You know that basically when we send people to prison, we're sentencing them to judicial rape. Mm. You're aware of that enough at 12 years old to make jokes about people getting locked up and getting raped. Mm -hmm. People know, people know, and we can't pretend constantly to be surprised and to say reform is the answer when you know it hasn't done that. One of the most difficult aspects to me of thinking as an abolitionist and acting and pushing and challenging as one is overcoming the punishment mindset. Overcoming this mindset when somebody harms you or harms someone you love. Revenge, yes. Yeah, some people just want revenge and that's why they do send people to prisons knowing it's horrible. And so how do we overcome this punishment mindset, which you write about is in many ways at the core of the criminal punishment system, obviously. Absolutely. I don't know is the answer. Mm. It's the honest answer. And it has been the work of a lifetime for me to try to figure out how to do that with people, including myself. One of the things about punishment that I think we have a hard time talking about publicly 
is that punishment is seductive because it actually gives some kind of pleasure to the person enacting the punishing. It also gives a sense of satisfaction Mm. because you did something back to the people who hurt you. That's real. That's a real visceral feeling that we get. And Mm -hmm. that's really hard to give up. The other thing about punishment is that it's easy. Punishment is something that you enact and the person that you're punishing doesn't have to do anything. They're just passive. They're receiving whatever your punishment is. Accountability is something totally different because you can't actually hold anybody accountable. You can only hold space for people to take accountability. Mm. It's an active thing. So it's much harder than punishment because it means that people have to figure out deciding that what they did was wrong, deciding that they want to make it right, and then acting on that. That's friggin' hard. Punishment is so easy, right? You don't have to do any of that. So how do we compete with that? Are you trying to say we're all low-key sociopaths and we want to... I don't even think it's sociopathic. (laughs) No, no, I'm just messing. I think it's societally legitimated. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, this is how we're supposed to handle things. This is how Hmm. the world is. It's naturalized. I've been trying to work it through and think it through now for, you know, 20 years. And I still am constantly struggling and struggling within my own self. Mm. <laughs> when mm. harm occurs to people I love or myself, I have to consciously stop myself and be like, okay, Miriam, it's okay to feel your feelings and you don't get to act on them. It seems to me when we're harmed, another feeling we have is we want that person to acknowledge that they harmed us. Yes. And yes. we want that person to not harm anyone else Again, it also seems this criminal punishment system has failed (laughs) completely in getting people to acknowledge it systematically is not set up to do that. But transformative justice, what you've advocated for is a replacement community process, which prioritizes hearing, repair and accountability is indeed set up to do that. Yeah, I love to think with people about transformative justice. I want to say really importantly and clearly to folks that I don't see transformative justice as the alternative to prisons, policing, and surveillance. Okay. Because I don't think we can have one alternative to policing, prisons, and surveillance. These institutions exist in this monolithic way And there are so many different kinds of harms. And that's part of why we are in the mess we're in today. But a lot of abolitionists have other ideas about the frameworks and politics that they embrace in their work. Abolitionists have different politics. All the different kinds of political frameworks that people have for making sense of the world exist within abolitionist thought and framing. One way that I have tried over the years to help people who have caused harm, to try to figure out a way to acknowledge that they did it, try to figure out a way to repair harm to the extent that it can be repaired, it's never going to be erased, Mm. and then to figure out ways to try not to do it again. But we're all human. People are always going to fall back. We have to give ourselves some grace and give each other more grace around that and understand that that's not a failure. That's life. And we have to be okay with that. You had a piece that really laid out the 
quote, reforms people should oppose and support, while also stating that you don't know anybody who's an abolitionist who doesn't support some reforms. (laughs) It depends on the type of reform. I want to just quickly go through some of these to give people a very concrete way of understanding what they could be opposing and what they could be supporting, specifically about policing. Mm -hmm. And so you ask the question, is the reform allocating more money to the police? Is the reform advocating for more police? Is the reform technology focused or is the reform about individual dialogues with individual cops? And you say, if it is, then you should oppose it. Yeah. Why? Our job is to think about whether we are trying to enhance freedom or enhance policing. Mm. And these questions help us to figure out whether we're in the right track. If you're giving more money to police and policing, it means that you're actually increasing the legitimacy of the institution and that you're helping the institution continue to exist and grow. You definitely would not want to be doing that as an abolitionist. We're trying to shrink the power of the institution. The question that we have about engaging in one-on-one dialogues with cops. Well, it goes back to my point about your Uncle Johnny not being the friggin' problem. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We are not trying to make it so that the cops will be nicer to young Black men. We want the power of policing diminished so that that power doesn't crush those young people. Hmm. Many years ago, I was taught a lesson by a young person who I was working with. He was navigating a case. He was a young 16-year-old. And I started talking with him about this idea that our organization was going to facilitate these talking circles between cops in the community and the young people in the community, because we wanted to preempt what always happened in the summer, which was our young people being highly harassed, told to get off the street corners, arrested for no reason. So in our mind at the time, it was like, well, if the cops knew these kids in a different kind of way, then perhaps they would have a different sense of empathy and be able to work different. And this young man said to me, Miss Cabo, (laughs) The problem isn't that these cops don't know us or that we don't know them. Mm. The problem is they know us too well Mm. and have all the power to crush us. Wow. And I was like, what was I thinking? This is me talking about this young person sitting in a circle with Officer Johnny (laughs) and thinking that that was going to make a real difference in getting targeted on a daily basis by this cop. Mm. The cop, in fact, does know his name has arrested him many times, harassed him, beaten his door down. This had already happened. And the cops still had all the power to do that after that conversation. So that's an example of why that wouldn't be a reform you should be supporting in any logical way. The technology is like in 2014, I and others kept screaming, body cameras are not the answer to this. Hmm. Giving more and more technology to the cops so that now we can see them killing people is not going to fundamentally shift the power (laughs) that police have to kill people. Trillions of dollars more being put into that institution, legitimizing it further, and still being in a position where people are still dying at a thousand people a year for the last two decades, you know? In the interim, on our way to creating a different type of society, you say the reforms we should support are proposals and laws that offer reparations to victims of police violence and their families, proposals and laws that decrease 
and redirect policing and prison funds to other social goods. We talked about education, healthcare, and laws and proposals for elected independent civilian police accountability boards with the power, which is a keyword, <laughs> to investigate, discipline, fire police officers and administrators with some caveats, proposals and laws to disarm the police, to simplify the process of dissolving existing police departments, like what I understand is happening in Ithaca, New York, yeah. laws for data transparency. So we know the data on who's being stopped, who's being arrested the budgets, the weaponry that police officers have. So your thoughts on those things that people should consider supporting in their local communities? Yeah, I believe that people have to have things to do. I don't believe that we can just tell people everything's terrible, everything's bad, and then not offer ways that people can be involved in transforming their conditions so that things change. So it's a good thing to know which cops in particular communities have had 19 complaints against them. Because the next time there's some complaint and people are like, oh, look, Officer Johnny has 19 million complaints against them. Not shocking that they would end up shooting and killing all these other people, right? But before it gets to that point, what are the mechanisms to get rid of Officer Johnny with 19 million complaints? You can use data to support changing certain things that will make a material difference in people's lives and perhaps save lives. So these are the kind of things that I think people can be pushing in a policy way in their local communities. After all, the criminal punishment system really operates at the state and municipal levels. Federal stuff is there, but it's not the main driver of what is going on. I know that despite the scale of American policing and surveillance and prisons, despite the number of people who, whenever they see a Black face, they see danger, despite how much we've defunded schools and social service nets, despite three people per day who are dying from the police, you talk about hope as a discipline that we have to practice every single day. Can you speak to what you mean by a discipline? Yeah, for me... The discipline of hope is choosing on a daily basis to look at the situations that are in front of us, confront them realistically, not in a pretend kind of way, and still say, yes, I'm still going to choose to struggle. But I also want to say something that I hope people really think about as well. Elizabeth Alexander said years ago, bad things proliferate in different ways. But that's not all the news. Yes, it's not. Every single day, I'm amazed at what people do for each other and with each other, despite the most difficult, horrific circumstances. Back to our pandemic life, what we saw was horrible, rapacious greed alongside beautiful mutual aid projects that people created on the fly to save each other's lives. And I can choose to look at the depressing, greedy vultures, or I could choose to focus on the mutual aid of ordinary, regular people who kept each other alive mm -hmm. to the extent that they could under such repressive and difficult circumstances. And I choose to look at that other side. Mm. I choose to put my energy and my hope as a discipline in all the other people who are doing all these incredible things to sustain life. That's where that comes from for me. And 
I'm lucky because I've had such great teachers in life who make me understand that struggle is critical to living. Struggle as a way to work with others to make more joy and to make life worth living. That's how I see that. And I could not be more grounded in reality. And that's why I'm committed to struggle. And that's why I'm committed to hoping as a discipline. Wow. I share the same perspective. Indeed, I decided very consciously to move to Boston because I wanted to walk the same streets of people like Mariah Stewart and David Walker, Mm -hmm. who imagined that we could build a nation without the terror of chattel slavery. And people thought they were crazy. (laughs) People thought they were out of their mind. But they were like, no, I'm not crazy. Slavery is crazy. I'm, you know, we're not crazy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. They were like, we know. We experienced this. We know what is going on here. And I love the fact that you said that you wanted to go to walk in the spaces where they walked. Because I think there's something about embodiment here that people really don't pay that much attention to. Walking the streets that people who came before us walked and that they were there understanding without any evidence at all that things were gonna be different. In fact, all evidence in front of them pointed to the fact that these systems were entrenched, intractable, and probably inevitable. Yes, And yet, In the midst of that, they were like, nope, not happening. In the midst of it. I see fragments of different possibilities today. And I believe that people I don't know, my grandchildren's grandchildren's life is going to be different than mine. I'm going to fight for it. And I'm going to refuse to take people's supposed realistic solutions as the only way to be able to make that happen. I love it. Mariam Kaba, thank you for your commitment to struggle, your discipline to hope. It was a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with you and learn from you. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for having me and thank you for your work. Of course. Miriam Kaba's term, the criminal punishment system, has really stuck with me. It highlights just how much punishment is at the center of the quote-unquote criminal justice system. And as Kaba said, punishment is the easy but harmful response to violence. There's disinformation circulating that to be anti-racist is to ignore crime, or what Kaba aptly terms harm. That those anti-racist abolitionists calling for alternatives to prisons and police somehow don't care about the rising homicide rates. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are not ignoring crime. We just have a different perspective on the origins of harm. Think about it this way. Are not the people searching for and striving to eliminate the roots of harm and violence, the very people most committed to safe communities? Are not the people ignoring the roots of harm and violence the very people allowing for its continuation. Many people desire all these heavily armed police and prisons to contain all these evil and bad people. But what if there's no such thing as bad people? What if there are people who do bad things? And what if people are more likely to do bad things under duress and in despair? 
What if we dramatically reduced societal duress and despair by investing in communities and institutions? And what if, when people still caused harm and violence, we figured out a way to respond that doesn't cause more violence and harm, to quote Kaba. To my mind, the people working to address the root causes of violence are actually the hardest on violence. Proponents of the criminal punishment system are not hard on crime. They're hard on people they deem criminals, and criminals, in their mind, are Black. They are hard on 13-year-olds like me in 1995, calling me a super predator when racism keeps preying on my life and livelihood. But imagining anew with abolitionist organizers like Miriam Kaba fills me with hope. Hope for a future that's focused on dangerous conditions rather than dangerous peoples. Hope for a future prioritizing community investment and restorative justice over punishment and condemnation. Hope for a future in which crimes of desperation lead forcefully to accountability and a remedy. Hope for a safe future. But to get there, we must be anti-racist. Be Anti-Racist is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. It is written and hosted by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and produced by Alexandra Garrison with associate producer Brittany Brown. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, our editor is Julia Barton, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lita Molad and Mia Lobel. Many thanks to Tammy Wynn and Dr. Heather Sanford at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University for all of their help. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find Dr. Kendi on Twitter at DREbram and on Instagram at EbramXK. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.